welcome along to the COVID Care Podcast. I'm your host, Caroline West, and on this podcast, I speak with those who accessed care services and two care providers who assisted a variety of vulnerable people during the COVID-19 lockdown in Ireland. This podcast is a part of the Tortoise Shack Network, and if you wish to support the work that the Shack does, you can donate at patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. My guests today are sharing their experiences as carers in the home. Thank you, Michael Mulligan and Sam Kenny for speaking with me today. I hope you're both keeping well. Thanks for having us. You're very welcome. Thank you, Caroline. Thank you. So you both have similar but different uh, situations. Uh, do you want to give us an outline of your particular situation, Sam? We might start with yourself. Yeah, sure. Um, I'm a mum of four. Uh, three of my children have additional needs. I have two um, sons who are autistic and then I have a little girl with a rare genetic syndrome. Um, my little girl requires 24-hour care. She has complex care needs, and as we call it, a shopping list of diagnoses. So she requires a, a lot of taking care of. Um, other than that, I, I'm kept busy with their appointments and their day-to-day lives, pretty much. I think that's probably an understatement, but we, <laughs> we might get to that during the, the podcast. Um, and then, Michael, yourself? Yeah, so um, I care for my mother, uh, who is 70. Uh, She has chronic obstructive pulmonary disorder. She has two different heart conditions, uh, problems with her joints. She is wheelchair dependent most of the time and and requires an awful lot of things with her day-to-day life. But I also care for my sister, who is 24 years old, has Down syndrome. Uh, She also has problems with her joints and is not fully mobile as an average person would be. And she has two rare blood conditions. So again, a lot of appointments. Okay. So you can really, I'm sure that there's going to be similarities, even though your situations are really quite different and um, you're accessing services and your experiences during lockdown. So maybe if we might dive into that, I know it's kind of a big question, but the issue of how did the lockdown impact how you cared for the people that you care for and your ability to access services to support that care? We've, we've never really had much access to any services, to be honest. And being, I've been a carer for the last three years now, and uh, I would say that I was isolated from society before lockdown anyway. Um, and I've become even more isolated from lockdown, from, from, from the circumstances of lockdown, as have my mother and my sister. Um, there, there haven't been any services, I haven't accessed any. Apart from medical services, um, but no, there have been no specific disability or respite services that I've accessed. Okay, so that sense of isolation that most of us were complaining about as a sudden sharp experience in March, you were well used to that. Yeah, I haven't really been, my life hasn't changed very much, to be honest. I haven't been anywhere except the hospital since March, um, and neither have my mother or my sister. Um, no, it's been, it's been largely the same except with an awful lot of fear and anxiety. And whereas before we could have gone to the shop, we we don't do that anymore. So it's just been total isolation. Okay. And Sam, would your experience be along the same lines? Yeah, I remember when lockdown was first put in and there was a lot of people complaining at the shock and how hard they were finding it. And the first thought that went through my mind was welcome to my world. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, no, it really is. It's welcome to my world. Um, we do have services. We have a, a in-home support and we have a Jack and Jill nurse. We lost them for two months. I absolutely faltered and f- flailed during this lockdown because they required care that I as one person could not give. I tried as hard as I could 
And at times it did detrimentally affect them because we lost all of our services because we couldn't take the risk of coming in, coming into our home. Um, my daughter has uh, epilepsy. Uh, she has an intellectual disability, a vision impairment, a hearing impairment, a low muscle tone and a tiny hole in her heart. But the biggest worry for us is if she caught it, it would trigger all of her seizures. And the last place we wanted to be in the middle of a pandemic was being rushed into a hospital, which, to be honest, we couldn't actually access because our hospital closed and moved to another hospital in order to be able to be accessed for COVID reasons. So we didn't have our usual hospital. Our team entirely moved. So, Michael, you said there you're well used to being on your own and having to do everything yourself. But Sam, that was a, a sharper learning curve, I suppose, for yourself. Are, are you both seeing similarities there between or between that sudden and gradual experience of I'm, I'm stuck doing this by myself now? I, I think for me, it was a case that you do so much by yourself as it is because you have no choice. Because if you don't do it and you don't shout loud enough, or even if you do shout loud enough, you don't always get the help and support you have and need and they need for me our lives were very closed off anyway because society isn't geared towards people with disabilities it's not no matter how inclusive they claim to be places aren't wheelchair accessible ava needs wheelchair similar to michael's mum. she's completely wheelchair dependent or dependent on us carrying her so accessibility isn't there anyway so to us it was just a continuation except now we were being even more forgotten about we weren't seen because vulnerable people were over 70. There was no roadmap or, or guidelines put in place for us. It was literally stay in your homes and there you go, good luck. So it was even worse than the usual isolation because it was like they were literally saying to you, out of sight, out of mind, go ahead, be by yourself. That sounds like a sense of abandonment, but also a doubled down sense of abandonment. Yeah, it's, I, I found it really horrible. The whole narrative has been, especially from, from the government and from the media generally, has been worse together. Um, but like disabilities and carers, we weren't in whatever it is to begin with, and we're certainly more left out of it now. The vulnerable have just been classified as the over 70s. And of course, that applies to my mother, but it doesn't apply to my sister at all. Like all of her services have been withdrawn. Um, and she, you know, she's aware enough to listen to the news and hear the over 70s are doing this and that you know young people shouldn't be doing this and she hears that and she thinks well i'm young why can't i go outside and then i have to explain all over again why basically she can't go outside because she could catch the virus could die and that's a horrible thing to be saying to someone every day and in the sense i don't mean to at all but the sense of fear COVID has instilled in her is quite tangible it's horrible that sense of fear is it really insidious for a lot of people but i suppose if you're if you're doubling down on having to be told that every day you know that's what a lot of people aren't really taking into account that if you're able-bodied and you know maybe you're in your 30s or 40s and you're at work that sense of fear isn't going to be the exact same thing I mean like when I had COVID I had a huge sense of fear of oh my gosh like what's what's going to go on but I suppose I didn't have to that level and and I I understood what was going on you know because my cognitive ability was there but I suppose for your sister that's like that relearning it's kind of reminded me a little bit of dementia again you know if people are kind of having to relearn that that same kind yeah. of information over and over again and Sam your children were they how did they understand what lockdown was did they have that same fear it, it was even worse because um my eight-year-old autistic chap didn't get it like we watched the news we watched the broadcast because you have to because it's the only way you're kept up to date like nobody 
contacts you from any department to say, this is what we're going to do for you, or this is how it's going to play out. We were getting our information at the same time everybody else was, and we were left to make our own decisions because it was constantly hammered into us as personal responsibility. So my eight-year-old would sit and watch the news, and he couldn't understand why we had to stay home, why we had to cocoon, because they kept saying it was elderly people, and we don't have any elderly people in our house. So it was a consistent narrative with him trying to explain to him, it's not just elderly people, it's your sister as well, because she's so sick. You know, she has the potential to get so sick. It was very hard for him and it was a double whammy because the other reason we had to stop home support was because our Jack and Jill nurse is a vulnerable person too and she's not elderly. Um, our home support worker, her husband was a vulnerable person too and she's not elderly and it was very hard for him to understand that this cocooning doesn't just apply to old people and, and even now the narrative is again, sure the people that are dying have underlying conditions, sure they're going to die anyway. Um, I can hand on my heart say that my daughter is not going to die any time in the next year. She is currently classified as stable. And if she dies due to um, contracting COVID-19, it's because she contracted COVID-19, not because she has all these underlying conditions. And I just really want to clear that up because it's really hateful and hurtful to use that kind of narrative to make everybody else's lives easier. And I can hear that in your voice, like that sense of frustration. And we've seen that in the media so much. And perhaps people who aren't as on board with the COVID messaging to kind of say, well, only maybe a certain amount of people actually died from COVID as if they were pure or, you know, were these perfect human bodies that had no imperfections or issues or anything like that. So I can see that frustration and I feel Michael, you're about to explode <laughs> there. So I'm going to come to yeah, you and see that. I don't know whether it's been the same for for most carers, but you at the start there was this narrative that you know all of your neighbours will, will they'll look out for you and you know postmen will come and check on you and the guards will come and check on you, and I can say that apart from one person who knocked on my door on my thirtieth birthday to say happy birthday, no one has visited our house. We haven't been checked on by any state agency, any medical team, um, not the county council, not the guards, not the postmen. Um, and not even any carer or disability charities or organizations, no one has contacted us. You can go with the, the narrative of personal responsibility all you want, but the whole point about carers and people with disabilities and people with rare conditions is that they're vulnerable and society is supposed to have a little bit of income taking care of them, even just a little bit, but there's been none. There's a real a lack of empathy, probably, like in, in the whole like dismissal of, oh, well, sure, they have an underlying condition, but to actually just be purely ignored and, and not be checked in and when we see on, on social media pictures of guards bringing your groceries and dancing to music as they do it and um you know the hashtags hold firm and we're in this together when, when both of you are clearly saying but that has absolutely not been our reality no. it was um a case that they said here's all your community support here's all the people you contact and like michael said nobody came to find us and in our community people know we exist like if I go out to the shop without Ava, somebody always asks about her. They know she's there. But um, I was fortunate in one way that I was very lucky that Family Carers Ireland, I'm, I'm involved with them. And we had a very good local coordinator who did come and check in with me because I was struggling pre-COVID with everything going on. She carried on continuing the check-ins and the care during COVID. But I never saw her community guard I never saw any local community workers there was there was nobody um it was relying on friends and 
my friends had their own worries and their own concerns. They had their own vulnerable people in their lives and they couldn't come out to me to mind me or help me. That kind of, my heart kind of breaks and I can hear that frustration again in, in your voice. It's coming through very loud and clear and, and that sense of unfairness, I suppose, would be would be one way of doing it. And then I suppose, Michael, you're, you're, you seem quite used to the unfairness on the other side of, of things because this is nothing that's new for you. Um, where, like, how do we start? If we are going into another lockdown, what are those lessons that that you you can apply, or what would you like to have? I suppose that's probably a better question. The idea lessons from lockdown applied to people in your situation, like how how can the government actually learn from this? I I don't think it, it I don't think there is any solution. I mean, the solution would clearly be to provide supports to carers and people with disabilities and people with conditions. Make sure that there are people checking on them. Make sure that they have access to good. Uh, medical support, social social care support, where possible. Of course, I know many people have underlying conditions themselves. Many people will uh, be vulnerable themselves, and there might not always be the right. Um, you might not be always be able to come into contact with the right professional you need to see because of a vulnerability. But to not even try is something else. It's not like they're saying we could give this to you, but because of vulnerabilities, it, it can't happen at the moment. They're not even saying anything. There's nothing. Well, if in my case, anyway, I don't know whether it's the same for every carer, but I've had no support at all. And, you know, talking about going into another lockdown, personally, I don't expect anything to change. And I could because I know that the will isn't there. There is no political will to help carers or people with disabilities. There wasn't any beforehand. There is, I know there are very well-meaning people in the, in the general population, but we're never on the political agenda, really. We're always on the fringe. You know, we have a, a primetime special every now and then. And it's really sad. And I, I hope all carers and people with disabilities can get through this and and be as well as they possibly can. But I, I wouldn't hold out hope for any supports in another lockdown. And Sam, would you be on the same mindset? There isn't any political will for us at all for any change because it would cost too much. That's that's literally what it is. Instead of spending the money, we are always put down for cuts. It's always us that get cuts because we can't get on the street and march. We can't get out and make noise. So we're just ignored because sure, if you don't make noise and you don't shout, you don't get anything. If anything, as it's shown in the past, you just get another kick while you're already down. Mm. Um, for another lockdown, Kildare's already gone through a lockdown again. There was no support. We were still left. Um, I'm fortunate that I have my in-home support back again because we didn't cope with it. My, my eight-year-old son massively regressed to the point that he was self-injuring because all of his coping mechanisms outside the home was gone. Um, it's the only way to describe it. If we go into another lockdown, we're highly likely to lose our home support again. There's no plan B for the schools. So I will still be expected to send my children into the schooling system. Um, I've looked for a plan B so that if the numbers keep rising, I can keep my children home. There isn't one, plain and simple. I, I don't think they will do anything because we're just not high enough up the agenda. We don't bring in enough money to the public coffers. And there isn't a political will because as far as they're concerned, there's better causes out there that will make better headlines than us. But not not that it's a numbers thing, because even one is too many. But the people with disabilities and, and accessing care service in Ireland, it's not a small number. It's not insignificant. No, but we're, we're not history. You know, we, we don't generate any profits. We, In fact, we, we cost the taxpayer. We don't actually necessarily give an awful lot to the taxpayer. And it's always the taxpayer that gets served in these narratives. The, the scary thing is, is if they factored in what we're saving, 
the taxpayer yeah. by doing the home care and not putting our, our people we care for into uh, hospitals or, in our case, expecting 24-hour care because Ava would need 24-hour care from a nurse. Um, plus, I mean, I mean, I can list what I'm saving the taxpayer by doing the, our own physiotherapy at home, uh, risk assessing our home, doing the occupational therapy, uh, the medication. Like, if they were to employ all those people, that would cost the government millions a year. And I'm just one person. Like, as a population, family carers save the government conservatively 10 billion a year by caring for their loved ones. And and many of us are not medically trained. We're not healthcare professionals. We are just regular people that's had to take on the role because there's, you do it because you care and you love the person you do it for. But at the same time, there's no other option. There's no other option given to us to be able to say and give us a choice. Did you feel that those conversations that we had around, especially around maybe the start of COVID time, so maybe March, April, around our frontline heroes and our essential workers and, you know, we have to clap for everyone. How did you respond to that, considering you are, you would have been considered essential workers if you were working in a service, if you were doing the exact same work you were doing outside your home and in an institution or in a hospital or healthcare setting? We're not seen like that, though, are we? We're not seen as frontline workers. We're not seen at all. So to me, um, I don't want to take any of the well-deserved gratitude that's shown to frontline workers because they do deserve it. They work hard. But to me, it wasn't aimed at people like me because we just weren't seen in the first place. And at the start of lockdown, like Michael said earlier, the, we're all in this together. We were never in this together in the first place. We will never be in this together. And to me, the lockdown and the pandemic has just hammered that home more and more. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I at the beginning, there was this, um, like I said, the sense of all being in it together. And there was this valorization of frontline workers. And that's fine, because they're doing a really, really difficult job in really, really difficult circumstances. And uh, they, they deserve all the all the kind of praise they're getting, all the, all the well-wishing. But the, I, I didn't expect to be in, in those those kind of stories, because then they never... Carers are never included. Family carers are never included. They've never been included in anything, really. I'm kind of, I'm, I'm being a bit too general, but if you can, no, there's, there's nothing that they've been included in. There's nothing tangible that has ever come from government or uh, society that has really made a difference or been particularly inclusive to carers or people with disabilities. I mean, society is so unfit for people with disabilities. Economy is unfit for people with disabilities. No one minds. Not, not enough to do anything about it anyway. I think we've been quite slow as a country to start seeing the humanity behind disability. And, we, you know, we've institutionalised a lot of people with disabilities for the longest time. And, you know, we didn't have people with disabilities maybe living in the community or working or in care because it was just, you know, we didn't take a very holistic approach to it. I, and I think it's only now in the last few years we started to have conversations about wheelchair accessibility for, you know, like um, pubs or, you know, restaurants, that kind of thing. So do you feel like we're, at, we're just really at the very tip of the iceberg? Um, I think for me, we aren't even at the tip of the iceberg. We're only just seeing the iceberg. That's that's how it feels for me. There's an awareness now that disabilities exist, but there's not much of a conversation, especially not involving them. It's all about people speaking on their behalf and telling it, telling them what they need 
rather than them being able to tell the people what they they themselves need. So I think education-wise, the first thing we've got to do is start amplifying the voices of those who need the support and help. I think that that is not done. When we see people with disabilities speaking up and saying, this is what we need, then we go, okay, that's what you need. We should be doing our best to provide you with what I need. you need, not what we believe you need and to just basically sideswiping them aside to just make it all look like we're doing enough um, education. I think people need to start realizing that some disabilities you may be born with, but there's quite a few disabilities that can come visiting at your door with just one wrong move. And it doesn't even have to be you. It could be a simple thing like you're walking across the street and just tripping and there you have an acquired brain injury. So this is what people need to realize is this othering of people with disabilities. Everybody is just one wrong move away from a disability. And I don't think people realize that. And if people started realizing that those people that they keep othering and the people that they're not listening to could one day be them, it might actually go a long way to breeding better compassion and better empathy, not just for their needs, but for the actual people involved. Yeah, I mean, I, I, would, I would agree with that really strongly. Just anyone could have a disability. You're, anyone's child could have a disability. It really could happen to any family. Um, and something, I mean, I study social policy as well. Um, but aside, uh, something I've been looking into is how perceptions of um, disability families, there's very little um, sympathy or even understanding of the fact the economic cost of disability in the family, having somebody who has rare conditions, it often means that one parent... Of, of a family cannot go to work. And that will have a huge impact on, on that family economically, but also on perceptions. And there's no real sympathy for that. There's no real sympathy for the fact that it's not just that somebody isn't working. They're, they're staying at home, usually providing really a serious level of care to someone who absolutely needs it. But still, I find that generally it kind of gets woven into this similar narrative of welfare as if everyone is just a job seeker. And then you have the, the actual welfare responses, which unfortunately will actually try to steer everyone in that direction. So like, it's kind of like, I'm, paraph- I'm not really paraphrasing at all. I'm actually saying what I think, but the narrative almost becomes, we know that you're a carer, but we know that you really should be working. We know that you have a disability, but how can you, I mean, it was actually in um, one of the Nagel's policy papers that they, one of their aims is to help people with disabilities overcome so that they could be in employment. Now, like, I'm not, I don't know about other people, but I understand that some people with physical disabilities in particular can just have modifications to a building that would allow them to go to work. But I don't understand how my son to overcome Down syndrome so she can just go off into the economy. And there's um, also that thing, why should you have to, why should that have to be the only focus so that your value is only seen in terms of the labour market and, you know, what you contribute as, as a, you know, a what sort of vector for capitalism you can't seem to exist outside of, of money it's actually reflected in the welfare rates as well if you consider the long job seekers allowance just average job seekers would usually get 203 euros a week that's the same as disability allowance but the labor market access is completely different so the disability you cannot just go off and get a job some people would be on that pay for life and it's 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 bordering on half the minimum wage like that's a terrible amount of money to live on for the rest of your life but there's not much noise about that. And, and furthermore to that, it impacts you in other ways. Like you, you find it practically impossible to buy a home or seek uh, housing. Not housing support, but be secure with your housing. It, that, that affects with carers allowance as well, that only certain banks will take it into account for mortgages. Yeah. So that it impacts that. Uh, having people with a disability in your family impacts things like mortgage applications too. So you're double whammy. You're not valued by the state. 
because look at how little they pay us. And that's means tested as well. So in my example, if my husband earns a certain amount, I lose my carer's allowance. I don't get paid at all to stay at home and provide this role for the government, saving them millions of euro. I am further devalued by the fact that my husband earns too much. And it's not even a big amount. You're looking at, they start cutting your wages at 38,000 euro a year for a couple, which works out to be 19,000 euro a person. So, I mean, it's not a large amount before they start taking money away from you. So it has far reaching implications, the way they place value on you by your economic ability to generate money for the for the state. That's how they, they look at you. And disabilities is even worse than that because not only are you paid badly with no opportunity to be able to improve your financial situation, society then look at you because you don't generate any money for the state as being a burden. It's the only way to describe it is they see you as a burden. So why should they support you when they could support others who can give money back to them? That's there's so much in that like you're you're talking our societal value on people, our political value on people, our cultural value on people, all those different things. I'm curious to know, because that's a that's a lot. You've got a lot to juggle between the actual role of being a carer and then as advocates and activists in this area as well, taking on all, all the stress of challenging, you know, these norms that we have. And, and they are norms from from what you're saying, like these, these are cross country um, viewpoints. How do you find time for caring for yourself? And especially during COVID, because I suppose that that really highlighted a lot of these issues. And and like you were saying, Sam, it was a sudden isolation, whereas, Michael, you're a little bit more used to that kind of isolation. But how how is self-care normally and how has it been under COVID with all these additional stresses? I say that I'm used to it. I am used to the isolation, but of course, my sister's day service has stopped. So whereas I would have been with my mother most of the week, um, just her in the daytime, my sister is now here 24-7 as well. So, I mean, that has had a huge impact on what I can get done in a day. Um, So, you know, running a house, it's just the three of us as well. I have no other family living nearby. So we're a triangle of care and disability that we don't have much outside support um, beyond ourselves. I haven't found much time for self-care, if I'm honest. I haven't really thought about it I, I I've had panic attacks um and I have had a great deal of difficulty in getting to sleep for a very long time but you know, I, don't, I don't mean to get too emotional but there's, there's nothing you can do you just have to cope it's not like I can bring anyone else in to help me because because of COVID-19 this is all I can do sometimes it, it, it manifests in strange ways like sometimes I catch myself just kind of staring just staring at a wall or staring at the TV for a few minutes. And it's then I realized that my, my brain has kind of actually just become a kind of bed of static noise where I catch up with what the day has been or what the last few months have been. So um, no, I haven't, I haven't been able to manage self-care very well. Like a terrible time for mental health in our house. Absolutely. And Sam, would you have that same experience? Um, I have suffered in the past, I still do with mental health issues. Um, I've had anxiety, depression in the past that has been completely debilitating. And I, I have to be mindful of my mental health because if my mental health goes, I cannot provide care for my loved ones. So I, I do the best that I can to try and even just cleave a little bit of time out just once a week to just go out and have a conversation with somebody, even if it's just a coffee, because you get to maybe be you for a little while and not the person that you are when you're having to care for everybody else because you do lose your identity when you care for everyone else because 
you can't be you all the time when you're looking after somebody else all the time. With COVID, I didn't do any self-care. I couldn't. It was just a case of putting the head down and surviving it. That, that's the only way to describe it. We, ha- we had to survive lockdown. People, people asked me, oh, how do you do it? How would you cope? We don't have a choice. You, you do just get on with it because there is no other option but to get on with it. Because if you don't do it, who else is going to do it? I get that sense from the both of you that there isn't a lot of time and capacity and space to be yourselves because you have to be 24-7 for other people. And, and like you said there, Sam, <clears throat> that like you're, you're going out for a coffee and a coffee is only, you know, half an hour, an hour kind of maximum. It's not like you're, you're gallivanting off for weekends or anything like that. So, um, like you don't, do you access respite for either of you? There, there is no respite for pediatrics for Ava. Um, the only respite that we could possibly avail of is Laura Lynn, but she's not classified as sick enough to access that. Any other respite services in our area that were open has currently closed. So I have no respite care and there is no sign of any future respite care coming. And I have chased this because I have not had a night away in probably close to six years. Um, Me and my husband haven't had a dinner in loan in probably close to six years because the care needs are there. You can't just ring up a babysitter and ask them to come in and mind the kids for an hour or two while you run to a cinema or run out for a meal. And similar to Michael, we don't have any family around us. We are our own unit. So I I don't know is the answer. Like if someone could tell me where the respite was, it would be great. (laughs) I wish I could wave a wand and respite is always going to be, well, it always has been underfunded and under-resourced and understaffed and not available to absolutely everyone. Um, and I know you're, you're both, you're outside of Dublin. Would I be right in assuming that most of the services are concentrated within Dublin and the, obviously COVID lockdown and, and restrictions on, on travel and access to public transport or even things like a taxi that can, you know, um, support a wheelchair. I'm assuming that that's going to have a lot of disruption on that side of things as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, most of the services are based in Dunster, if, I, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, I've never actually availed of respite services since I became a carer. Um, I was offered respite once three years ago for one night. Um, but to be honest, my sister, she really, really hates being away from home. And it was the, I'm in the situation where, uh, I'm sure lots of people are, where you know, I could, I could put my sister into respite, but I'd still be caring for my mother anyway. It's not like I get the night off or anything and, and I'd rather her not be upset like I'd rather her just go about her business and be here and happy so I mean I feel kind of privileged in that for whatever reason I have managed without respite but I know there are so many people so many carers who like like was said just do not get a night off don't even get 20 minutes off for years and those services should absolutely be available there's no real reason apart from funding as with everything else we've been talking about. And I know you have, um, you're great at tweeting and your account is an absolute wealth of knowledge uh, on, on the issue of disability, but you were tweeting recently about there being a 5 million euro bill uh, funding billed as being for carers, but you kind of picked that apart and said that's not actually the case. So you can imagine that th- this fund was hailed as this great benef- beneficiary and oh, it's amazing that we're going to give so much money, 5 million euro, it's going to be great. But you're saying, well, actually, that's not actually the case. That that money is, is supposed to be, so 
the funding gets kind of announced and then it'll be apportioned out to organizations uh, so that they can come up with things for carers and people with disabilities to engage with, mostly activation measures. I imagine it will go mostly into apprenticeships and community employment schemes, maybe not the actual scheme, but things like that. And there's value in that. Like that, It's good for people to be able to access or engage with employment where possible. But like the truth is that from my point of view anyway, anyone who is a carer force who is medically vulnerable in a household with somebody who is medically vulnerable or with a disability the last thing you want to do in a pandemic is send them out to work absolutely i know if i mean if, if my sister was if my sister got an invitation to one of these activation measures there's no way she would go like when, when, when everything is safe again sure you know you, you can have some engaging thoughtful activation measure that gets you active in the community gets you something to do broadens your horizons a bit but no like why, why would you send vulnerable people out in a pandemic and work isn't necessarily the priority right now. No. I mean, we're telling everyone else to work from home. And when we were under lockdown, everyone was supposed to work from home if they could. But this funding is primarily to, to start up apprenticeships and things like that. I mean, something I have been really critical about is the, the idea that, you know, vulnerable people have to stay at home during a lockdown. There was no, there was no real reason why they, they couldn't just con a small payment to one of the care or disability payments to assist with the cost of deliveries, like the cost of deliveries in our household has gone, has made a real impact because we, like I said, we haven't been to the shop in months. And, you know, all these vans are turning up with groceries and it costs a lot of money, especially for people who are on relatively low rates of wealth. That's it wouldn't have been hard. Point. Yeah, like the grocery thing, I remember back in, in the start of lockdown and it was really hard to get a, a slot and that was for you know, the average everyday person who maybe weren't being as considerate of those who actually physically could not actually get out to the shop. Yeah. And that's, and I wonder what Sam, would that have been the case um, down in Kildare as well? That, that same. I had a special kind of scheme set up where at approximately five to 12 every night, I would go on Tesco Ireland and book a slot three weeks in advance in order to get my deliveries to my door. That's the three only weeks. way I could get it done. Three weeks. Wow. And I did click and collect for the first two weeks, which I was fortunate enough to be able to do. And then after the third week, I could get delivery slots. And it was every, my delivery was on a Thursday. So it had to be every Wednesday night that the Thursday slot would be released or whatever night. I think it was a Tuesday, actually. The Thursday slot would be released and I would be up at midnight on that night, making sure I got that delivery slot. Otherwise, we didn't get one. And um, just going back to that fund, uh, the 5 million fund as well, they had a cut of over 2 million euro to disability services as the last government unwound. So how much of that 5 million is actually just plugging the gap of the 2 million they took away in the first place? So really, it's not 5 million at all. It's only 3 million. And there's no way that's going to filter down to the carers or the people who actually need the services. There's no way it is because most of the services are being provided by charities for starters. And those charities are talking about massive, massive, massive losses of income due to so many fundraising events being cancelled. So the services are already being cut because the charities can't provide the services anymore because they don't have the funding. This five million they're talking about, half of it is just plugging a gap that the government took the money from in the first place. So, I mean, really, there's not really much benefit to anybody from that money because none of the money's going to go where it needs to go. And that, that must be incredibly frustrating to know that that money is paying someone's salary to find employment for a disabled person rather than filtering down to yourselves and, and making that kind of a difference in, in your lives to me it just makes me really angry because it just further compounds 
the devaluation that happens to you by being a family carer in the first place is that they would rather give the money to somebody in a job in an office rather than to the people who are desperately, desperately screaming out for help and support and saying that they are at the end of their tether. They, they'd rather create roles than help the ones that are already floundering. And I'm sure that, I mean, I keep coming back to using the word frustrating, but I can hear it in both of you in, in very different ways and perhaps my glare a little bit longer on the path and not not as resigned, resigned is the wrong word, but you, you're kind of less emotional maybe than maybe Sam is because Sam's had that sharp shock of, oh my gosh, we've had it like an immediate six months. And that's not to dismiss all the stuff that's been going on for absolute years. But I can feel it kind of bubbling in the two of you and even looking at at your faces, I can I can see that frustration. And then I suppose when you hear things like, oh, five million, it's great and all our problems are solved. Like that must be just demoralizing again. I suppose I grew up um, with my sister who has a disability and we came we were a single parent family for the majority of that. Um, So I've I've been familiar with the idea of intellectual disability and, and the supports for people who didn't touch the disability for a long time. Um, and I know that like not all of these things, all of these schemes, they they appear and somewhere between the government, the intended recipient, it disappears. Um, and that's the same with nearly everything. It's the same with it's even the same with things like speech and language therapy. Like my sister was supposed to have speech and language therapy um, when she was at her special school before she turned 18 when she was still at school. And um, now, she aged out of that entitlement. She just didn't get any because the, the waiting list was so long. And I know that's the same for so many people. It's, it's difficult to know what to say, that there's just nothing is changing. As, as Sam said, like that, that funding isn't even really five million. And, and, and so the, the half of it isn't actually really there. And it doesn't even come anywhere close to what the actual cost of, of helping carers or people with disabilities would be. And I, frustration, yeah, but you you just get used to it. You just, it's just a, another facet of your kind of miserable identity as a carer. And, and, and I know you're, you're being ironic with that as well, but it also is the reality for a lot of it. Of, of just like, that's not the life no one envisions for themselves and, and not the life that you envision for the people that you're caring for either you should have access to decent services and support and respite services and education and all those lovely things that should really be provided by a society as a as a basic um are there any societies around the world that that you might be you maybe look at and think oh that they actually they're doing a good job in the area of disability and caring or is i'm imagining there's not a lot no um, I look around the world and no, I don't think there really is where, where there's a value placed on them as human beings. I think they're still seen as second class citizens if they're even seen as citizens. I mean, yeah, Ireland is doing better than some of the other countries out there, but it's, it's nowhere near where it should be. It's it's nowhere near that at, at all. And I mean, it just feels very much like unless you have a financial value, then you have no value. And that's not just coming from me. That's coming from, from other places too. And you kind of always know that you have no value when you step into this role and, or when you have a disability or you become disabled, 
but the pandemic just kind of hammered at home because the small bit of the filter that people had there not to say it are now quite openly saying it to your face that you have no value and you have no worth. Michael, I see you nod, nodding away furiously at that in agreement. One, one thing that um, other countries, um, I think the Scandinavian do, countries do certain aspects of disability better than we do. But if you I mean, you look at any country, there are kind of, there are good things and there are bad things. And we do some things slightly better than others, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's overall a good thing. Because you, you get into an argument about, or a whole debate about tax intake and public services, because we have this backdrop of like really scant, bad public services and of course, if that was not the case, if we had really good public services, the quality of life for everyone would be a little bit higher and you could start from there, but we don't even have that baseline. Um, but something that stuck out to me at the beginning of the pandemic was the pandemic employment payment. And I was, I was really pleased that there was a welfare response from the government to help people who have become unemployed due to the pandemic. And I was pleased that it was set as high as, but it was insulting because every year a certain number of carers lose their jobs to care. So if you lose your job to the pandemic, you know, you'll, you'll be supported at this level immediately. If you lose your job to if you lose your, your employment to care, then you, you get sort of much, much lower rate of 219 euros a week. Um, and it really, it really shows that they, they place a different value on you. And, and there's also a wait time to be able to access that money with, with no support. So you could end up having to leave employment, but it can take up to six months, six months for your welfare to kick in. And there's no support for those six months. Like you, you're told, go to your CWO. Like, I don't know if anybody has gone and sat in a CWO's office, <laughs> but it's not a there's no guarantee. Yeah, but there's no guarantee either of how much you'll get because your means tested it's just, it's a quagmire. Like there was none of that. You, you lost your job due to the pandemic and they looked at it at face value and went, here you go. Let's hope you get, hope to get you back into employment. And like Michael said, you lose your job to become a carer and oh, well, you're going to have to wait six months to get that through the administration. And we might not be able to give you all of that money, even though it's a small payment, you know, because your husband might earn too much or your partner might earn too much. So you're just seen as completely different. It's a huge lack of compassion there, and that, and seeing you as a human being. I, I don't want to be too kind of too too personal about this, but I found the whole process of applying for carers' allowance mind-numbing and really upsetting. Um, the interactions I've had with people from the Department of Social, sorry, Department of Employment Affairs and Social Protection, they, they don't treat you nicely. They treat you like you're trying, trying to get to something steal from them. Money. That, that you're absolutely not entitled to. sometimes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Despite it being an entitlement that you're entitled to, it's, we, we have a really, I, I would say disgusting, we have a disgusting attitude to welfare in this country. And, you know, you can see it's, it's slightly going off topic. We live in an economy now where there's so much precarious employment. So many people are stuck in poverty traps that are a combination of welfare and employment employment like that isn't to be worshipped. Like what essentially give the message out to society that, you know, you can be valued if you are employable and if you are employed at all costs. It doesn't really matter how much your life suffers or how much the lives of your children suffer, just become employed. Because there are so many people who are employed and they're in poverty. Yeah, absolutely. And and there's people working jobs and still like they're going hungry 
still and it, it's completely not as acceptable the word precarity used there and, and you know I'm, I'm fascinated by that as a concept and you, you've both brought in so many elements to precarity between wondering about homelessness or like keeping your roof over your head or getting a mortgage how you know being a carer impacts that how your person that you're caring for goes to school how they access services I'm curious to know where you both draw your resilience from because you are both resilient and you're very frustrated and angry and, and obviously justifiably so but I can sense that resilience from the two of you in that you're, you're keeping going but you're also supporting others and you're advocates and you're activists and you've taken your experiences and you know you're shaping that better world and you're using your resilience to, to form that and to hopefully change the situation for people who are coming up behind you maybe or other people who are isolated as well where does that resilience come from Sam I might start with you there my resilience comes from because we deserve better it's it's that simple um I, people have said that I'm fairly humble because I, I don't see, they, they say to me, oh, I don't see how you get through all that. Uh, you do a lot. You take on board a lot. I don't see it as that. I see it as my role. They're, they're my loved ones. I'm here to care for them. That, that's what I do. But I deserve better. I don't deserve to be seen by a government that I was employed by at one point. Uh, not employed by, sorry, that I was employed and paying into as a taxpayer to then place no worse on me. My kids deserve better. They deserve to be seen as human beings as everyone else. They deserve to access an education system as everybody else. They deserve to have all their hopes and dreams and not have their hopes and dreams quashed because they have a diagnosis. Like, they are human beings too. And they will aspire to whatever they wish to aspire to. But as the situation is right now, if we don't keep challenging it, then they don't have any hope. They don't have any hope to aspire to anything because they won't be allowed to because they'll be continually kicked while they're down. So my resilience comes in because I just want to make sure that they stand a chance in life because everybody deserves to stand a chance in life. Yeah, absolutely. And, and then Michael as well. When I took over caring for my situation was I was working as a teacher um, and then I was trying to make very difficult to balance. I was getting more ill. I was trying to look after my mother and go to work. Uh, then my mother couldn't really look after my sister. So I was looking after both of them and trying to go to work. And then gradually my time just started to run out. And the only thing I could do was give up work and become a carer full time. Um, but when that happened, when I took on the responsibility of that, I, I spent maybe two or three months trying to get used to it. Um, and thinking about my sister's life in particular because she has an intellectual disability and what her future would be like. And I started to realize, and even though I knew, I, never, I had never really taken in properly just how terrible our society is for, for someone with, with an intellectual disability. Um, simple things like, you know, going to a bank is an absolute ordeal. They, they won't deal with her. And I, I've, I've written about this before, but it's, there are so many ways in which having an intellectual disability or any disability makes, you know, you, society is just not designed for, there's, there's no way for you to get through it. Um, thinking about her future more long-term, yeah, like, like Sam, I, it really, really upsets me that she has no opportunities. It really, really makes me angry that 
she has so many good qualities and she deserves, I mean, she's an adult now, she's 24, but in, in many ways she has some qualities that a child would have. Um, she deserves opportunity. She deserves a chance to be herself and to have society respond to her. But there isn't any of that. There's no real response from society. Um, if you look at things like employment opportunities for people with disabilities, my sister did actually have um, an employment opportunity. She went to work in a cafe, um, which is partly run by her day service. So it was a very well-managed environment for her to experience employment. But she came home in floods of tears because a group of teenagers laughed at her. They just pointed at her and laughed. And she's never gotten over that. And now she has a slightly weird fear of cafes, which is understandable, but that's something we're trying to work on. But oh, there, I have so many stories like that where you, you, know, you have good faith in something. Something just comes along and slaps you in the face. You really kind of viscerally realize that there is no real place for people with disabilities. I think that COVID has really functioned as quite the slap in the face and really highlighting a lot, a lot of the issues that you're both experiencing and, and many other people around the country with similar or really radically different setups in their caring situations. So um, we might finish there, but I'd love to have just, I suppose, a, a brief closing kind of thought on we're now living with COVID. We're now hopefully hopefully not having another lockdown, but we need to kind of refigure out life now and, and how we're, we're going to manage. What are your thoughts on going forward? What you'd like the government to do or, or support services in, I know it's ideal world thinking, but you know we, we should be pulling them and nagging them and advocating and, and all those things that you're both already doing. But for the people who are listening, how do we make life for carers and life for people with disabilities and people who are cared for more comfortable going forward now that we're living with COVID? For me, for starters, recognition would be great. There, there's no recognition that we exist. There's no roadmap for us. We have not been considered in any of the roadmaps. We are just, if you look at the roadmaps, it says vulnerable cocooning, that's it. But those vulnerable people they're not this solo entity they have a family they're part of the community their families are part of the community we can't just be left in isolation by ourselves like an island because we're not an island that would be a good start it's just recognition going forward beyond the recognition it would actually be looking at implementing the support but in a safe way like anybody that has called for support has an understanding that it has to be done in a safe way, but looking at how it can actually be provided in a safe way. So say, for example, the government said they would open day services. That's great. But then some families out there can't get transport to the day services. So even though all the day service has been opened, they're not accessible because people can't get to them. So there's no joined up thinking. It's just we'll do whatever to make it look like we're doing something while we're not really doing what needs to be done, if that makes sense. I think they would be my two biggest one is recognition goes a long way when you're already feeling pretty worthless. And definitely there needs to be more joined up thinking and a look at the actual supports and services needed and how they can be provided. Because if this is going on until 2022, how are we supposed to cope for a year and a half? Not not just us, but our loved ones. 
like there's going to be a point where I'm not going to be able to send my children out into the world to school because it's going to be too risky. I don't have a plan B. The government doesn't have a plan B for me. That needs to be considered too. And more than just the plan B, plan C and plan D as well, just to, because, you know, that uncertainty and unknowingness of how we're living our lives. And like you said, there's no point opening a service if no one can access the service. That's completely pointless. So, yeah. Uh, Michael, yourself there on on that thought? I I very much agree with Sam um, that the lack of joined up thinking in government policy drives me insane. It's so difficult to understand why it happens. the transport issue, like I, I'm a provisional learner driver, so I can't drive unaccompanied, um, obviously, and I can't get into the car with anyone anymore because they might have COVID-19. Um, I can't take my sister to her day service. They're not providing a bus. That's it. She can't go. Now, in her case, she's too medically vulnerable to go anyway, but if she wasn't, she wouldn't be able to go. It's all the same things, really. There's, you know, welfare responses, health entitlements, um, supports. And when when there's a support like a day service or perhaps like respite care, if there's a, a block to it, they, if they, you know, the, the, these policymakers, the people who come up with these ideas, if they see something that doesn't work and they say, okay, well, that's that's going to be a problem here, rather than say, oh, okay, well, that's not going to work, why don't they say, okay, we'll try something else, or we'll make it safer this way. Or we'll include, well, you know, we'll employ an, a few people to make it safe. That doesn't seem to happen. I don't understand why. I, I just don't understand why. It, it, it's not quite the same. But you, you know, you see that the amount of advisors this particular government has, and the results of that advice. Why? What? What was the use in that? Yeah, I think that money for some of the advisors might be better spent on actually supporting the people <laughs> that they're advising about. So, yeah, um, I really appreciate the, the two of you talking to me tonight and, and sharing your story. It's It's been harrowing. It's actually been really a, a difficult to listen. There's, there's not been a whole lot of joy in, in the conversation. And, you know, I suppose that's a realistic look of what, what's going on for you both at, at the moment. So. Um, is is there a place that people can find you to either support you or to join up? I know you're again you're both activists as well. Do you have social media platforms? Um, I just have my own personal Facebook, and I'm I'm on Twitter, but I'm not that active on Twitter. Um, my daughter has a Facebook page as well. Um, she's uh, under Ava, the Ultimate Diva. Like so <laughs> oh, if you ever met her, it's a perfect description. <laughs> um, we we just use it to keep people up to date on her and her progress because she is as sassy as they come. Um, so if people wanted to reach me there as well, they're welcome to. Brilliant. And then Michael? Uh, I'm only active on Twitter as far as social media goes. And uh, my Twitter handle is just at M-O-M-L-G-N. And I, I tweet a lot about care and disability and, and policy and problems and just generally angry about it. <laughs> Which is absolutely valid. Absolutely. And you have a blog as well. Oh, I do, yeah. Um, it's whocares.blog uh, with a dash in between who and cares. Um, and that's just a more in-depth look. It kind of combines what I'm studying with what I'm doing. So I, I look at care and disability policy and, and, and welfare responses as well. So, Brilliant. Yeah. And you have you have that linked anyway on your Twitter account as well. So people do, can yeah. click through. Um, thank you both so much for sharing your stories and I really hope that some someone in government shows a little bit of humanity <laughs> and compassion 
at some point very urgently soon. So yeah, uh, it's it's a very frustrating experience, and obviously not just frustrating for yourselves, but for the people that you're caring for as well, and the, the different futures that we want to create and should be actively creating for for people in Ireland. So um, thank you so so much for sharing your your stories with me today, and hopefully people do reach out and, and support you and get connected up and you know hopefully have a little revolution in, in Ireland um, to change absolutely everything um and thanks to all my listeners as well you can find the podcast on twitter the hashtag covid care podcast you can rate and review on apple or you can follow us on spotify and we are part of the tortoise shack network so you can find us on tortoise thank you for listening and i'll speak to you next week